Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about getting invested, which is our clever way of saying you're going to really pour your, well, no, you're not. You're just going to kind of look into the possibility of investing in stocks. That's what we're going to do. And being committed to it and learning about it and and focus. Exactly. That's what being invested means. It's not about a lot of time. It's about a commitment. It's about a commitment to learn properly. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. And we're, we're very much following uh, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, go look him up, wiki him, um, David Einhorn, Manesh Pabrai. Those are the modern versions, although Buffett's still modern pretty modern. Versions. Charlie's still kicking. <laughs> Where the fundamental focus is to buy, as Manesh puts it, a free lottery ticket, something that has so little downside um, that... Really, the, the only thing really left to worry about is how big an upside if there's going to be one at all. And so, you know, obviously you have to know some things. We've been talking about that on the podcast. Uh, in order to find really good companies that are on sale, um, the three keywords of investing, according to Ben Graham, who started all this and taught everybody, are margin of safety. So we really look to understand the value of a business, which we've been talking about. But let's assume, Danielle, that we're not geniuses and we buy a company at, let's say, $25 a share, and it still goes down. It goes down farther. It goes to 20 and then it goes to 15 over, let's say, a year's period of time. This would scare most investors out of ever wanting to do investing on their own. That would be the nightmare. Yeah, because you need to have the confidence that you've made a good decision, and that's a hard thing to get. Well, I got to tell you, it takes a lot of time to get to that confidence um, because you have to see yourself make some winners happen, you know? You got to yeah, know that you're point. doing it. Yeah. So we do some things that help our confidence. We, we try to make sure we're following in one of the gurus that are doing these stocks, and we'll talk about that someday. Um, it's one of the really cool secret things we can do. And, um, but we do one more thing. Um, we're following this acronym called RULER, which stands for get on. how did the stock get on your radar? That's the R. And then please understand the business. Make sure you do. Um, then make sure you attach it, your values and the business together, which we got to talk about a lot more about that. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. We're going to love the business. And then there's an event that put it on sale. So we're not expecting to be smarter than, you know, uh, New York Wall Street guys. We're just trying to take advantage of the fact that they move in a herd and they follow momentum and they're relatively short-term investors. So if something's going to happen bad to a company for a year or so, they're all going to get out and that thing could go on sale very easily. And we try to find those and then that's called event. And then the R in ruler stands for reduced basis. And this is what I was kind of getting to for you. It's like, even if we goof up, we want to be sure that over a period of time, we're getting our money off the table. And there's three ways that we can do this. We can. We, what, what does getting our money off the table mean? Well, it means that, I mean, I use in a metaphor that's common, you know, about going to Las Vegas. Okay. And you're betting in blackjack. And you started off with $100. And you win and you win. And now you've got $200. So you cleverly sneak $100 off the table. And now you're playing with house money. So you're going to go home, a, 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 you're not going to go home a loser. If you don't take that money back out of your pocket, you're, you're going to win, uh, or at least you're going to break even. And so we shoot for that in our investments, particularly if we're 
looking at building a retirement portfolio. Let's say we're 50, 55 years old and we want to retire. What, what if you owned companies and those companies produced a dividend and the dividend started off at 3%, let's say, which is what IBM is right now. So you get 3% dividend. Okay, great. But every year, IBM pays you this dividend, you, that's money coming off the table. So as an investor, You're I don't... You're saying that the dividend shows up and you take that as essentially reimbursing you for purchasing the exactly. original price of the stock. Exactly. Will Rogers back in the 30s says, I don't worry about return on capital. I worry about return of capital, which means <laughs> his first concern was to get his money back out of an investment. And his accent, I imagine. Yeah, probably in his accent from Oklahoma back. Yeah. Sorry, Will. <laughs> so, and, and of course, this is our focus as a rule one investor. Rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So we want to focus on not losing money. And one of the best ways to do that after we've done all the rest of our homework is to get our money off the table. Just collect it and get it out of there. And there are three ways that this happens. We, we, companies pay out something called a dividend. They also buy back their own stock. And finally, there are specific options that we can do, which options are kind of a of a, of a uh, financial product that's based on the underlying stock, which we'll talk about another time. But those three things, dividends, buybacks, and options, provide what I would call return of capital. So I'm gonna keep calling, uh, this is more psychological than anything else. This isn't like a generally accepted accounting principle. Yeah, I'm getting that picture. Right? So most people, when they, um, put their money in investment and they get a dividend, they don't, re they don't consider it a return of their money. They, they consider it a yield on their investment. Yeah. But we don't. We consider it a return of our capital. And we're going to take that return of capital and we're going to reinvest that either back into this company, if the stock is still cheap, or we're going to buy other companies with it. So as long as that money keeps working, as long as that's working capital, and in one way or another, we are continuing to invest it, then the only really thing that's happening with this one specific investment is that we are getting our money out of it. And now we better put it somewhere else and put it to work. Now, when that changes, when it goes to return on capital or yield, is when we start to actually spend the money. Okay, so we shift in our thinking is what you're saying. Yeah, it's a thinking shift. One of the one of the key thinking shifts is to not consider that dividends are a return on capital. Right. But a return of capital. But and then, then we said, shift okay. it so that someday we retire. And the whole goal of what I'm teaching you guys is to be able to retire and never have to worry about the stock market ever. And you've got tons of money in it and you don't have to worry about it going up or going down because you're not dependent on that. And this is one of the really huge secrets that Buffett doesn't really talk about much because it's a little hard to understand that what you're really trying to do is buy companies that you'll never sell, that you will never unload these companies because these companies become an investment that's almost identical to a bond. They become almost like a 
a U.S. Treasury bond. It's a long, long-term bond. And now you're living on the capital from this bond. And you have this yield on what you have left in this investment that just keeps getting bigger every year because the dividends keep growing. Is that antithetical to what you were saying before about buying a company because of an event that has driven down the price? And then once that event becomes solved, we sell? Well, no, um, we really didn't talk about when the event's solved, we sell, although we could, right? I mean, if we're building a portfolio, if we're a long way from retirement, you know, we are realistically going to hope that the companies we buy super cheap go up to be super expensive. And then they may become so stupidly expensive that we'd sell them um, with the expectation we can buy them back cheaper later on. That can certainly happen. Or maybe we'll sell them because there's another opportunity to put our money to work harder than it's working right now in that one because that one already went all the way back up. And we don't see a lot of predicted gain in right, that company. Right, right. We've already gotten like big it's, it's gains made out its of it. uh, what's the the sticker price? Is that what we're calling yep, it? Yeah, that's it's made it back to sticker and then some. And so chances are from that point on, it will only grow as fast as the company itself is growing. So what we want to do is let's we don't really care how fast the company is growing, other than just looking at growth rates to try to figure out the value of the business and to have some minimum standard, right, of 10% or so. But once that's the, once that's the case, we, we just recognize that we're going to make our huge return based on what we paid for the company. So investing is all about how you buy, right? Now, it, it, a lot of investors go, it's all about how you sell, but it isn't at all. And you'll see that in this lesson, uh, in this podcast, because if we can buy things at 50% off, essentially what we're doing is we're buying $10 bills for five bucks. And someday that will be available to us to sell for $10, someday, right? Now, that the change in price from $5 back to $10 is often just the resolution of the problem, of the event mm -hmm. that put it on sale. Mm -hmm. Right, so BP goes through this catastrophe in the Gulf, and uh, the stock goes to 27, and then it goes back up to 50, right? Because they stopped the, the the bleeding, even though they still had this huge lawsuit, the stock still went back up to 50. So, and it went up back to 50 in in like a year or two. So if it goes from five back to 10, that's tremendous, and it does it in a year or two. That's tremendous velocity of money. Our compounded rate of return. Is a factor uh, is a function of two things. First, what did we buy at, and what are we going to sell at? And then, second, how long did it take? So, if it goes from five to ten in one year, that's a one hundred percent compounded rate of return. If it goes from five to ten in two years, it's about a thirty-eight percent compounded rate of return. And if it goes from five to ten in three years, it's a twenty-six percent compounded rate of return. And that's our target. Actually, we're, we're targeting a three-year compounded rate of return of 26% in a given company. Now, the what happens if it goes back up there in three years is that now the money's not gonna grow at 26% a year anymore because now it's just gonna grow at whatever the growth rate of that company is, assuming the stock keeps up with it in a good market. And so let's say the company's growing at 10%. So we've gone from 26% a year for three years in terms of our return on our money, and now suddenly it's changed to 10% a year. So the velocity of the money, the velocity of the growth of the money 
has slowed down dramatically. And that's why we might want to sell. Yeah. Okay. So despite an event happening, the companies we're buying are, are fundamentally, because we've done our research and we understand the company, are fundamentally worth holding for a long time. Still, we might sell at the end of that or at the resolution of that event just because we have other higher velocity companies that exactly. are having events exactly. to invest in. Now, a lot of times we don't have that. We don't have any place to put the cash. And, we're, and so we may well just leave it there and get 10% a year. That can happen. But more importantly is to understand what that company is doing in terms of its free cash. And we'll get deeper into free cash as we go. But free cash, by definition, is the operating cash flow of the company minus the capital expenses that that company has to do every year for maintenance. Those are called maintenance capex. So free cash flow of a company is all the cash that they get at the end of the year minus the stuff that they have to spend to stay in business. From that point on, it's up to the management of the company what they want to do with this free cash. Now, the management team is going to use some of that to grow the company, but they don't probably have to use all of it. Like Whole Foods management team is going to use some of it to lease, you know, get more leases and hire more employees and grow. But there, there may be, and with a really good company there is, a lot of cash left over. And that cash that's left over is after you subtract just not only maintenance capex, but also the rest of the purchases of property and equipment that this company needs to grow. And then you have stuff left over. And we call that owner, owner cash. And some people call it free cash. But let's just say that the difference between free cash flow and owner cash flow is that you take the free cash flow and grow the company with it. And the owner cash flow is you took the free cash flow, grew the company with it, and you still have a bunch of cash left over. And so they give out a dividend. And so they do something with it. <laughs> now, uh, recently, Carl Icahn jumped in and bought a bunch of Apple Computer and, um, and got in there with a big block of stock so he could make some noise and people would pay attention and said, you guys have to quit sitting on this huge pile of cash because Apple wasn't paying dividends. Hmm. Apple was just sitting on billions and billions of dollars. And Icon came in and said, look, I'm now an owner of the company. I want to get paid. You have all this cash you're not using. It's way more than you need to protect yourself. So give me it. <laughs> <laughs> me personally. Me personally. Carl. I want my share. And, and in all fairness, he's right. Um, if the company doesn't need its cash, it shouldn't hold on to it. It should pass it out to shareholders. And unfortunately, a lot of management teams start to become traders right about here. They start to look around and think, wow, I can take this extra cash and I can go buy that company with it. Hmm. Right? They can put it to work in other ways besides yeah. giving it out to the owners. Yeah, besides giving it to the owners, they might buy a company. And unfortunately, they may not be the hardest core negotiators in the world for this company that they buy. And they, well, you know, they may start to see the return on equity go down as they start to spend the money on bad purchases. So then if we see the return on equity going down, we've talked about this, that puts up a red flag and we want, want to be sure we understand what's going on with these guys. Why are they buying things that don't produce as good a return as what they were doing with the regular business? Okay, so they don't have to pay a dividend and a lot of companies don't. The CEOs love to have a lot of cash hanging around. 
but they should pay a dividend if the money's not being used. And that dividend is simply a, a cash credit that they make to you at your brokerage account. And so let's take an example, okay? Let's take IBM. Those guys are paying out a consistent cash credit in your brokerage account or paying money to you, which you can collect up and, and spend, of let's say 3% a year. So the company is selling for $160 a share and it's paying out about whatever 3% of that would be, right? It's about $5. Okay, so you buy the company for $160 and that's your investment and you hopefully buy it on sale. And now you're getting paid every year, and they actually pay it quarterly, but you pay out every year about $5. Now, IBM is doing, doing that forever, and they keep raising the dividend. They keep bringing in more cash, or they borrow money, and they pay this dividend. And part of why people would own that company is to get the dividend as a yield on their investment. We don't think like that at all. We don't look at a company and say, oh, I'm gonna buy that company because I get a nice yield on my investment. We look and buy that company because it's on sale and we understand that business. The dividend is irrelevant to that purchase. Okay, Okay. to the decision to purchase. Yep, we don't care if they're paying dividends or not paying dividends. What we care about is that that thing is worth, let's say in IBM's case, you know, 250 to $320 a share and we can get it for 160. And I'm definitely not saying it's worth that. I'm now, just, just why on earth would that be true? If you have company A and company B, and they both have really good numbers, and we understand both of them, and they're both on sale due to some event that is fixable, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I pick company A with the dividend over company B that does not have a dividend? Because company, well, and because they, there's a re, there is a valid reason that a management team would not pay a dividend. There's a valid reason that but you should looking, love. If I'm looking for the last R in rulers, which I already forgot what that was. Reduce basis. Reduce basis. Then I should be trying to reduce my basis. By yes. But buying a company that gives me a dividend. Yes. But there's always a but, right? Sure. And the but is that some companies can use their cash, their free, their owner cash flow to grow the business, they can use all of it. In other words, there's no owner cash flow, really. They just take all of the cash flow. I'm so sorry about that beep. Maybe put it on silent. Okay. (laughs) Maybe we we should put our phones on silent. It's on silent now. Okay, Okay, so these guys can use this this free cash flow and they can use all of it. They're they're grabbing it all up rather than paying out um, any money to the owner. So on one hand, you've got company A, which is using all the free cash flow to grow, and it's growing fast. It's growing at 20, 25% a year. That's the one with no dividend? With no dividend. So that's B in my in my. Oh, sorry, that's though. company B. Yeah. Growing so what at 20, you're saying, 25% a year. What you're saying, I think, is that company B is using its money wisely and in a way that as an owner, we would want them to use it so that the price of the stock we purchased continues its trajectory and they get out of their event and everything's happy. Exactly. They're using it so well that I have to question whether I can use it that well. Got it. Still, if the R in ruler exists, if that's really something that is on the same plane of importance as understanding the business, that we actually reduce our basis, 
wouldn't I still choose, and I'm not saying it is, but wouldn't I still choose the company that gives me the dividend? Well, think about what you're going to do with the dividend, right? And then that's going to be your answer. If you've got a place to put that dividend capital where you can grow that dividend capital at 25 or 35% a year, then the answer is sure. Um, if you don't have any, it, if the other company though is growing it at 35% a year for you, then you really, that's a pretty good thing. So maybe the reduced basis isn't on the same importance level as, uh, as understanding the company and as a margin of safety. Maybe it's like a nice to have if we make that decision to prioritize our money in that way. I'm thinking. Okay. You've really asked a really good question. Um, I love dividend producing companies. I love companies that do buybacks, but I've got some caution for you here. So first off, a company that doesn't pay dividends and doesn't do buybacks is simpler um, in, in terms of what the management's doing. They're growing it like crazy. And it went on sale and I bought some and now they're gonna take it all and just grow it like crazier. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the next question, right? Is that only companies that are well-established have lots of resources, have lots of reserves, are going to give out a dividend. Right. And I kind of am excited more by companies that are growing and are doing something new and need to put all of their cash back into the business because otherwise they're not going to survive. I think that's exciting. So I'm more naturally drawn to the ones that, that just wouldn't give a dividend because it's a poor money management decision in the company. Right. And then that, that can be the case for companies that are in early stage, but it doesn't have to be the case for, you don't have to be early stage. Apple computer wasn't paid dividends. No, and obviously public companies, public companies are not early stage companies, but there are public companies that still are growing and are still acting like early stage companies, even though they're not. Yeah, I mean, if you but if you look at Apple, Apple's like 20, 30 years old or something, and it was not paying dividends. It was using all of its cash. So, and so it's oh, they pretty, were using. Oh, I thought you said they had massive reserves. But they, and eventually they ended up with massive amount of cash. Okay. Right, but they're still they weren't a startup, you know. Yeah. Well, you've made that point. So I got to tell you though, I. Here's what makes it a little harder to buy a company, a little harder to choose between the two, is that a dividend-producing company can sometimes be liars with their dividends, and people don't realize this. And it's really heinous bastards that run those companies who do this, but they're paying a dividend even though they don't have any free cash flow to pay it with. They're borrowing uh, money to do I it. I think you mentioned this once. I mentioned it in Some rule number company, one. GM was doing it like yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's that's what you said. They were they were um, and they're using liars. their dividend to make their their stockholders think that they were doing okay. Exactly. People who weren't looking at the numbers. People who weren't looking at the numbers. Little old grandmothers who trusted GM because yeah. their husband said to. Yeah. And those bastards kept paying that dividend even though they couldn't afford to do it because they didn't want to admit they had huge problems, okay? So really, you know, questionable moral uh, positions by management team. So the first thing is, can this company afford to pay those dividends? You want to look, do they have owner cash that they can pay the dividends out with? So you want to do the do the little numbers there and look at operating cash flow, subtract out PP&E or purchase of property and equipment, which is on the cash flow statement, and then what you'll get when you do the math is owner cash. So if they've got plenty of owner cash to pay a dividend, then great, that's awesome. Now, the other thing companies do, especially right now in this stock market, is they buy back their own stock. Yeah, I feel like that needs like a separate 
a whole separate discussion. You're right. Buying back stock is a whole thing. Let's do that one next time. Okay. Um, because I actually have to run to the airport no. in the next two minutes. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're going to say this. Dividends, the way we look at them, are return on capital. And here's how I, I, I adjust my basis when I get a dividend. So IBM pays a $5 dividend. I adjust my basis on an Excel spreadsheet. I'm just kind of keeping track of this myself from 160 to 155. And then the next year they pay a $6 dividend. And I adjust my basis from 155 down to 149. And the next year they pay a $6 dividend. So I drop it to 143. And the next year they pay a $7 dividend. And I drop it to 136. And the next year they pay an $8 dividend. And I drop it to 128. So you can see that in a period of years, my what I have at risk on the table in IBM will naturally go down if they continue to function well and they pay a dividend. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets really cool. I do this calculation that I think you guys should learn called yield on adjusted basis. And what it is, is the dividend that I get, let's say six or seven years from now from IBM, and let's say the dividend's $10. And my adjusted basis is $100, right? Eight, seven, eight years. I have $100 left on the table and I'm getting a $10 dividend. So my yield on adjusted basis is 10%. Now I started with a yield on adjusted basis of 3% right at the very beginning. And now my yield has grown to 10%. And what I wanted to teach you guys in this class, in this podcast was that if you're retired and, and you start to spend the money now with a basis of $100 in IBM, and now you're spending that $10 a share. Let's say you have uh, 2,000 shares. So you're getting $20,000 a year in as um, a yield on adjusted basis. So now you're spending that 20,000 to live on it. So now you're no longer reducing your basis. Your basis stays fixed at 100 and you're living on this. But check out what happens, you guys. This year I got $10 and 20,000 total. Next year they raise the dividend again and I'm getting $11 and now I get $22,000 total. In effect, what I have is a bond here that I'm never gonna sell that gets bigger in its yield every single year. And Buffett calls this an equity bond, and he's got a portfolio full of them, paying off enormous amounts of money relative to what he put into the company originally. And I think we talked about like C's candy that's still paying, like paying 65 million on the $25 million that he originally put in. So he has an infinite rate of return on that. And it gets bigger every year. So how cool, I'm going to wrap it up with this because I got to go. But how cool would it be to have a retirement portfolio full of these equity bonds that are growing bigger every year? Inflation will never catch up with you because they grow with inflation. These companies are immune to inflation, most of them. And you've got this portfolio that's bigger when you're 85 than it was at 75 and bigger at 90 than it was at 85 compared to most people who have their money in bonds, which... They have to shrink as time goes along and take shorter and shorter term bonds. They ladder their bonds. So you end up with lower and lower returns the older you get. Or you learn how to do rule one style investing and your returns go up the older and older you get. That's cool. You like that? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a cool thought. Um, I'm no retirement planner, but I would think, and we should talk about this next time, I would think... um, if the market goes down, they're going to stop paying those dividends or they will reduce them. 
I don't know how much we can be certain that those dividends are going to come up, and well, I don't know how much we can count on them. Well, the fun thing is that... I mean, these are private companies. This is what we've said. These are private companies. This is not something that can't go away. Right. It could go away. But remember, I'm sorry. You know, they're not private. They're public. They're public companies. <laughs> it could go away. But so, you know, like, these are like CDs, right? I mean, the CDs are the same company. I mean, you got a Coca-Cola CD. It's a bond from Coca-Cola. It's paying you this interest rate. But it's not going up every year. It's the same company. I just want the dividend to increase every year as my basis goes down. And the second thing is that the ups and downs of the market don't have any direct connection with the payment of dividends. It's the ups and downs of the free cash flow. Yeah, but wouldn't the market affect the free cash flow? Not necessarily at all. No, I mean, a lot of people in the depression. Oh, a lot of people in the depression were living on their dividends from blue chip companies. Hmm. Um, They absolutely made it through the depression. You know, not a real problem because the dividends just kept pouring in from some of these great companies that were doing well during the depression. Interesting. This requires further study. Okay, we'll dive into that next time. I have absolutely got to go to the airport. I love you. I got to run. And all you guys. (laughs) I think it's time for me to, well, I can't go play. I got to go work. But until next time. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. (laughs) I'm going to ship this guy off. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Hey, you guys. Thanks for listening to Invested, the rule number one podcast. If you like us, please subscribe, please, and leave a review for us on iTunes. Uh, By the way, you can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and uh, also get more information about how to invest on your own by going to investedpodcast.com. By the way, everything, this is important, everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and it isn't to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. I, I gotta tell you, I really hope you enjoyed it. And I know Danielle does too. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.